Um, I'll encourage you to grab a Bible if you brought one, and uh, if you didn't, there should be one in the pew in front of you, and uh, you can turn to the Gospel of John this morning. We have two weeks left in the Gospel of John, um, which is exciting. Uh, This is week 50, so we've almost been a full year of Sundays through this Gospel, and so um, we are continuing this morning in chapter 20. Uh, looking at the resurrection of Jesus, and specifically this morning, we're talking about the topic of belief and faith in Jesus. Um, Some of you might recognize the phrase, because um, it's used in our society sometimes, um, pics, like P-I-C-S, like pictures, or it didn't happen, right? And so what what that phrase is, is like, okay, you, you tell me a story of something crazy that happened, I got to see some pictures or, or I'm just not going to believe you, right? It's almost this idea of like, I need some, some physical evidence. Um, so as an example, just recently, my, my sister and her family that lives in Yellowknife, they were going to come visit us for Thanksgiving, and they do that often. And so the, the more early morning of the day that they were supposed to leave and drive there, I get a text from my sister saying, Andrew, I'm sick like very sick, I'm not going to make it, Um, hopefully we'll try and come for Easter. And my first thought was like, really? Am I like, are you just trying to throw me off so that, you know, later that afternoon, oh, we're here, we got you. So I, because I'm very smart, I did some investigative, like I told Molly I was going to tell her, well, fine, we're going to go to Grand Prairie now for the weekend and see if I like called their bluff. But then my my brother-in-law sent me some pictures of like, well, now that we're not coming, I'm putting Christmas lights on our house. And so he showed me, he's on his roof, hanging Christmas lights, and so pictures of, okay, I guess they're still in Yellowknife, they're not actually coming, but even then I was like, are these from last year? Like, I don't know if I believe this, but they ended up not coming, and it was kind of the, the picture evidence that I went, okay, I guess that is your house, I guess you haven't actually left, and and many of us do that. It's like someone tells you a story, right? Stan Troyer is like, I caught a 20-pound fish. I'm like, really? Did you? Let me see some evidence. Like, show me a picture, right? And many of us do that. We're very skeptical unless we see some kind of evidence. We struggle to believe something, especially things that sound like very unbelievable, And so in our passage today, it's kind of the same thing. Um, Jesus appears to a group of disciples, and we'll see that um, some, they're not all there. And then those disciples go and tell, right, poor Thomas, he gets such a bad rap. They go tell Thomas, and what does Thomas say? Not going to believe it unless I see it myself, right? And so today, what we want to ask and answer is, should you and I, uh, as Christians, you know, 2,000 years removed from the resurrection of Jesus, should we still seek signs and wonders and evidences as proof of Christianity being true, or is our faith in what happened enough? So if you have a Bible, let's read just verses 19 to 23, and then we'll unpack it a little bit and then finish the rest. But this is what it says. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So a, a couple of thoughts. Um, this, is, this is happening on the same day as last week's passage. If you remember last week, early in the morning, Mary and John and Peter, they, they see the empty tomb. This is on the Sunday. And then uh, Mary actually meets the resurrect, resurrected Jesus and she goes and tells disciples. Now we're at that same day, but it's in the evening, we're, we're told. And it's at night, and the disciples are in a locked room for fear of the Jews. And let me just remind you, often when, almost exclusively, when John uses that phrase, the Jews, he doesn't mean all the Jews, he means the religious leaders. So I think this shows us that the disciples still haven't fully grasped that Jesus is alive because they're still terrified. Their door's locked, are we going to be killed next? Are they after us? Right, and we, we know from the other gospel accounts that when Mary comes and tells the disciples, they all go, Mary, you're crazy. You didn't see the resurrected Jesus. They, so, so we can assume that most, if not all, of the disciples still think Jesus is dead and just his body's been moved somewhere. And so they're afraid of being killed themselves. Like, are we next? Is the high priest going to send guards out and, and go after Peter or John? Like, there's this uncertainty, so they're, they're, lock, they're in a locked room, and it says that Jesus comes and just stands among them. I would, have, I would have loved to see this, right? Were they in a circle praying, and Jesus just kind of appears next to the circle? Peace be with you. Ah! Right? Like, is that what happened? Who knows? But what it tells us is that somehow Jesus can get into a locked room, right, and appear to his disciples. And what does he do? He shows them his hands, right? The, 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 the scars in his hands, and he shows them his side where the spear went in to basically be like, hey, this is not a phantom. You're not seeing just a spirit. Look, it's like me. It's flesh and blood. I'm standing in front of you. And, it, and then it says that the disciples are, are glad. And in verse 21, Jesus says, peace be with you again. And then he gives what is commonly called John's version of the Great Commission. He says, uh, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So if you remember in, in, in Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, Jesus gives his disciples the great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. Right? And so John, this is John's version of essentially the same thing. He says, listen, God sent me, now I'm sending you. Now here's where it gets interesting. Verse 22, it says, Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So how do we make sense of this? Because if you know your Bibles, we know that the Holy Spirit came and was given in Acts chapter 2. Uh, at Pentecost, that's when the Spirit came in power. Remember, it was like the sound of a rushing wind and tongues of fire were, were resting on them and they spoke in, in human languages that they didn't know and people heard the gospel. Like we know that that's when the Holy Spirit came. So, so what is happening here? Is John wrong? Is he saying, no, the Holy Spirit came when Jesus you know, breathed on the disciples in that locked room? Or were there two givings of the Holy Spirit? Is this one and then Acts chapter two is another one? 
Some say, right, there's, there's much debate. Some say that, well, this is just John's version of Acts chapter 2, which is hard because, right, sometimes the gospel, uh, the four gospels, they, they vary slightly in details, but they don't vary this much, right, where, where the, the account in Acts 2 is vastly different from this one. So I don't think this is John just saying, well, for for my purposes, I'm just going to change the story a little bit. It's too drastic of a change. Some have said, well, um, this is Jesus giving the disciples not the Holy Spirit, but just an impersonal spirit, like a spirit of revelation and understanding, right? And, and they'll go to the Greek and say, oh, certain participles are not in front of Holy Spirit, so it can't be the Holy Spirit. And, okay, that's one option. Some say... Um, that this is a partial giving of the Spirit, right? Jesus gave them like 40% of the Spirit now and 60% later. Um, I think all of those ex- examples or uh, ideas just kind of fall short. It doesn't really help clear this up. I, I think that what Jesus is doing here is largely symbolic for a couple of reasons. I'll tell you why. Um, if you look at the Greek text, the text actually doesn't say that Jesus breathed on them. That's how scholars have translated it, but it actually just says that Jesus breathed, like he took a breath, and then he said, receive the Spirit. So right when, when we've, tra- and I get why translators have translated it that way, but we kind of view it as Jesus going, <gasps> when blowing the Spirit. That's not what happened. Literally, it, it should be translated, and with that he breathed, <sighs> and said, receive the Spirit. So the wording is really similar to Genesis uh, 2, verse 7. If you remember, God forms the man out of dust from the ground, and then he, he breathes, and that man becomes a living being. So there's, I think there's symbolism going on here about the disciples being made spiritually uh, alive. The other reason I think it's symbolic is if this is the giving of the Spirit, Thomas isn't there. So does Thomas miss out? Sorry, Thomas, you didn't receive the Spirit. You weren't there. Well, we go, no, all the apostles received the Spirit when it came at Pentecost. So it's not as if Thomas, like, where were you, buddy? You missed out. And, and, and the reason I don't think this is the, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit is that we're going to see the very next part of our passage. They're in a locked room a week later, afraid again. Now, does that sound like Acts 2 when the Spirit comes on Peter and he says to all the Jewish people, you killed Jesus? Well, no, right? So... If this was the full giving of the Spirit, they wouldn't be in a locked room again, afraid of the religious leaders. So I think what what is happening here is Jesus is doing this symbolic act where he's pointing forward to and anticipating the future giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It's It's very similar. If you remember when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, right? And if you remember, Peter was like, no, Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. And what did... Jesus say to Peter, he says, unless I wash you, you have no part of me, or no part with me, rather. Now, what did Jesus mean? He didn't literally mean, Peter, right now in this moment, if you don't let me give you a bath, then you're not a follower of me. No, what is he talking about? He's pointing forward to his death and his resurrection. If you don't let yourself be washed spiritually by me, then you have no part in me. So Jesus does this symbolic act, but what is it doing? It's pointing forward to the death and resurrection that he's going to go through. So I think it's very similar when Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit, he's pointing forward to when the Holy Spirit would come in full power. That 
That seems to me to be the most likely explanation to reconcile John 20 and Acts chapter 2 together. So that's the first difficulty. We're not even through this. Ready? The next verse. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Is Jesus giving his disciples the authority to forgive or not forgive people? The Catholic Church would say, yes. If you go to a priest, he can either forgive your sin or not forgive your sin. And Catholic priests would point to this verse saying, look, Jesus gave us the authority to forgive your sins. That's not what Jesus is saying. Christians, disciples, even you and I today, we're involved in the mission, but God is the one that does the forgiving. The emphasis here is not on individuals being given the power to forgive sins, but rather on the church's duty to proclaim that forgiveness is available and also warn the unrepentant, uh, the unrepentant that they're forfeiting the mercy of God if they don't repent. So in the Greek, it's actually, they're both in perfect tense verbs, meaning it, it, it more accurately says, um, if you forgive the sins of any, they have been forgiven, or um, it has been withheld. So let me give you an example. If someone came to me, uh, and, and this has happened, someone came to me in my office, let's say, and they said, um, hey, I'm not a Christian, but I've read the Bible. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died and that he was raised from the dead. I am believing and trusting in him for my salvation, and I've confessed that I've sinned against him and that I want to follow him. I could, with, uh, with um, confidence, tell that person, your sins have been forgiven. Not that I'm forgiving you, but based on your confession, I can with, with confidence say, yes, your sins have been forgiven. You've trusted in Jesus. Now, on, uh, conversely, if someone came and I talked with them and I shared the gospel and they said, hogwash, don't believe it. Jesus is not the Messiah. He didn't die. He wasn't raised from the dead. I can with confidence tell that person, your sins are not forgiven. Why? Do I have authority? No. Because you've rejected Jesus, right? So it's actually quite simple. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is, as you go out and you proclaim the gospel, you can with confidence say to people who surrender to Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And say to people who reject Jesus, you're still in your sin, right? It's not the disciples who are doing the forgiving. It's God who does the forgiving. But we we can make judgment calls based on how people react and respond to the gospel. So it's quite amazing. Jesus um, is uh, commissioning his disciples. He's pointing forward to, okay, the Holy Spirit's going to come and you are going to have power from on high to go and share the gospel. And as you do, you can with confidence tell people that if you trust in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. If you reject him, they're not forgiven. Now, verse 24 we get a little interesting tidbit. It says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them. When Jesus came, and so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, 
and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So interesting that we're told, right, after this incredible event where Jesus shows up to the disciples, we're told in verse 24, but one of them wasn't there. And actually, that's interesting. So, so often, um, scholars try and figure out details that were not given. Like, I can't tell you how much I've read of why wasn't Thomas there? Where was he? Was he processing Jesus' death different? And it's like, it actually doesn't matter. He wasn't there. So who knows? Was he fishing? Was he, who cares, right? He just wasn't there. That's the whole point, right? And so the other disciples come to Thomas, and they're like, we've seen Jesus, very similar to Mary, right? Mary goes and tells all the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And so they tell Thomas, we've seen Jesus. And Thomas responds like I think all of us might respond. Where he goes, picks or it didn't happen, right? Let me see some evidence. And Thomas says, unless I actually put my fingers in the scars, I will never believe. And so then we're told in verse 26, eight days later, so that's the next Sunday, because remember, uh, Jewish people count any part of the day as uh, a full day. So you, count, you start at Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Sunday. So that's eight days later. The next Sunday, they're inside. Thomas is with them. The doors are locked. Jesus comes in. Like, as you read it, you're like, is this deja vu? This is exactly what happened before, right? They're all there. Jesus comes. He says, peace be with you. And I would... Again, I, we weren't there, but I, I, I would love to have seen that if, if Jesus was like, so Thomas, heard you were having some trouble believing, right? And then he says, here's my hands, put your, put your fingers in there. Maybe he lifted up his, I don't know, here's the side, put your fingers in there. Don't disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. Now here's the question, why did Jesus cater to Thomas's doubt? Why, why didn't Jesus just go, well, if you're going to doubt, then fine, you're out. I think this is purely an act of grace by Jesus. Jesus condescended himself to meet Thomas's uh, doubt because Thomas was one of the apostles. And if you know, the, all of the apostles had to see the resurrected Jesus to have the kind of authority that they claimed to have. If you're a man who says, I have authority to write scripture, the very words of God, one of the requirements in the early church for that kind of authority was, you have to have seen the resurrected Jesus. So Jesus comes, and Thomas is one of his apostles, and he meets Thomas where he's at, and he says, here, here, buddy, touch my hands, touch my side. And I love Thomas's response. He says, my Lord and my God. This is the clearest claim to Jesus being God that we have in this gospel. And this, this brings our gospel full circle. How did our gospel begin? John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now here, near the end of our gospel, Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus and he goes, my Lord and my God. Now, some uh, more liberal scholars have tried to say, no, 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 Thomas wasn't calling Jesus God. He was just saying like uh, an, an explicit, like, oh my God, that's what he was saying. It was just a shock that he said that. One, that is the silliest argument in the world because in the Jewish ancient worldview, that kind of language didn't exist. 
So you can't take a North American taking the Lord's name in vain and saying, Thomas, 2,000 years ago, was just saying, OMG, Jesus. That's just foolishness. That didn't exist in their worldview. Thomas is not just shocked and saying, uh, or taking God's name in vain. He is saying, standing in front of me, here is God himself. And notice that Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 Thomas. Don't worship me. Don't call me God. No, Jesus accepts the title. Why? Because he's God in the flesh. So Thomas believes after seeing. Now here is where it gets so encouraging for us. Verses 29 to 31. It says this, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you, North Peace, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here is Jesus specifically addressing us, people who weren't there, None of us have seen, the re- we weren't in the room, and we didn't see physically standing in front of the resurrected Jesus. And so Jesus says to Thomas, okay, Thomas, you've believed because you've seen me, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Um, this is so profound, I don't want you to miss this, that Jesus is saying there's actually a blessing attached to believing in him without ever seeing him. Um, this is what's called a, a beatitude. Um, If you remember in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus um, sits down to teach the crowds in the Sermon on the Mount, he begins uh, with what we call the Beatitudes, and there's a whole list of blessing. You know, blessed are you if this, and and really it just means um, happy and accepted and blessed, a full life. But the things that that Jesus said seem so opposite to us, right? In Matthew, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who mourn. And our culture would look at that and say, really? I'm blessed if I'm poor and I'm crying and mourning and I'm persecuted for my faith? It seems so different than the world, doesn't it? And now Jesus says, he says this beatitude in verse 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And I think we would go, really? Wouldn't I be more blessed if I actually saw Jesus resurrected standing in front of me? Wouldn't that be more of a blessing? But Jesus says, no, it's not actually. It is a blessing if you can believe without ever seeing the resurrected Jesus physically standing in front of you. Why? What what Jesus means is, is that you and I today, we're not deprived because we've never physically seen Jesus. Right? I've, I've actually had conversations with people who said, man, my life would be so much better if, if I could have just been there and seen Jesus physically. Um, Jesus says, actually, that's not true. You're not less than because you've never seen the, the resurrected Jesus face to face. You're actually blessed. So what is the blessing? Um, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, Peter says this, though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter says to his uh, audience that he's writing to and to us, 
Though you've never seen Jesus, you love him. And though you actually don't see him physically now, you believe in him. And look at what the result is. We rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What is the blessing of believing in Jesus without seeing him? You are filled with a joy that you cannot explain in any other way and a joy that is filled with glory and you've obtained the salvation of your soul. That is the blessing of believing in Jesus without seeing him. You've received salvation. So then why do so many people today seek signs and proof before coming to Jesus? Why do so many of us struggle with what Jesus says is actually a massive blessing to us? Why do we struggle with, I need to see some kind of proof or evidence? I mean, actually, there's, there's whole denominations in Christianity today that say that we're explicitly supposed to chase after miracles and signs and wonders and blessings and proof because that's evidence of the Spirit's work. Um, I can even remember as a, as a kid, I... I uh, gave my life early to Jesus, like at a young age, but I remember specifically sitting in my room and praying with my eyes closed going, Jesus, oh man, it would be so helpful if you could show up physically and just confirm what I believe. And then I would kind of peek one eye open. Okay, he's not here. <laughs> it didn't work. And I, I can remember doing that often, often praying, like, Jesus, just give me some kind of, like, if I, you know, lift my mattress and there's $10 under there, I'll, it'll be such a help to, like, believe in you. And I know you, you laugh. you've all done this, where you're like, Jesus, it would just help me so much if you could just show me some kind of sign so that I can believe in you. Why do we do that when Jesus says, um, it's actually a blessing if you can just believe with not, without ever seeing me physically. I think there's a few things going on. First, a, a few different reasons. First of all, someone who continues to seek proof and signs and wonders and evidence, it could be that they just have a hard heart. Um, several examples from Jesus, Matthew 16, it says, the Pharisees and the Sad when they came, or, or rather, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. The sign of Jonah is his resurrection. So again, look, Mark 8, again, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Not just the Pharisees, look at this, Luke 11, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So here we have Jesus multiple times. People came to him and said, Jesus, we'll believe in you if you just do one more trick for us. Do one more sign. Show us just one more wonder. And we read from Scripture, those types of people weren't really interested in following Jesus. 
They were coming to Jesus with a hard, skeptical heart. And if Jesus had split the sky open and thousands of angels had come down, you know what would have happened? They still wouldn't believe. Because their hearts are hard. So I think some people today, not all, some people today demand proof and signs and wonders and evidence because they have hard hearts. Secondly, um, some people demand signs, uh, not, or sorry, this is not the second one yet. This is continuing on. Some people demand signs not because they're interested in Jesus, actually. And I love that Jesus doesn't cave into those pressures. He doesn't go, okay, you want another sign? Fine, let me do another sign for you. He goes, no, I'm not giving you a sign. It's actually, you, you are evil and adulterous if you're seeking signs and wonders from me. Um, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1.22. It says this, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Even after Jesus ascended into heaven and the early church was being planted, Paul says, still people are saying, give us some signs. And the Greeks were saying, well, we actually only care about wisdom. Uh, uh, just impress us with your wise speech. And what does Paul say? He doesn't go, okay, uh, we got to do some signs to convince these people. What does he say? Nope. We're going to preach Jesus hanging on a cross. And it's going to be foolishness to you, but to those who are being saved by God, you'll hear that and go, that is the power of God. So some people have hard hearts. Secondly, I think a desire to see signs and wonders is just a, a sign of unbelief. It's a lack of faith. Paul says, us preaching Christ crucified should be enough. But for some, they see the gospel, they hear the words of God, they, they hear about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and then they hear about a costly life of discipleship, and oftentimes the response is, that's it? And so for some, they, they then chase after signs and wonders and proof, because here's what really it is. They're more interested in the signs than the one that the signs are meant to point to. Think about the crowds with Jesus. He just fed 5,000 men, probably 15,000 people total. And now all the crowds are chasing after him. And what does he say? He said, this is my paraphrase, you're not actually interested in me. You just want another free meal. I think that's exactly what we see in much of Christianity today. Are you actually interested in Christ crucified? Or do you just want to see another leg lengthened in front of you? Like, do you just want to see more magic tricks or are you actually interested in the gospel of Jesus and dying to yourself? So some people, they seek signs and wonders because they want signs and wonders. They actually don't want Jesus. Um, one pastor in the States uh, that I was listening to, um, I'm using the word pastor loosely. I wouldn't necessarily actually call him that. But he said that Jesus only performs signs and miracles as a man, not as God, so that you and I can do all the same exact things that Jesus did. And so then let's chase after it. Jesus can walk on water, you can walk on water. Jesus can feed 5,000 people, you can feed 5,000 people. He was just a guy who was doing amazing things empowered by the Spirit, and we should go and we should seek all of these signs and wonders. I mean, John told us, right? Why did Jesus do these signs? Did Jesus do signs and wonders and then say, now you can do all the things I did? No. John says, Jesus, I've written down these signs that Jesus did. Why? So that you would believe 
that you would have faith in him. That's why Jesus did signs and wonders. Charles Spurgeon said this, after the full proofs which Christ gave to his apostles, we need no more. And to look for further signs and evidences would be wrong. Yet some are demanding. Miracles, faith healings, visions, voices, impressions, transports, etc. It's dishonoring, unreasonable, presumptuous, damaging, and dangerous. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong. Miracles happen. Absolutely. Wonders happen. There's things that God does that we just can't explain, and praise God. He still does amazing things, but we are never once encouraged to chase after them. We're encouraged and commanded to preach Christ crucified. That's the wisdom and power of God. So then, how do you and I have this kind of faith? Right? Where, where Jesus says, um, if you've, you're blessed if you've not seen me and yet you've believed. And then he goes on to say, Jesus did all these other signs. They're not written in this book. These are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. How do you and I have that kind of just solid faith in Jesus whom we have never seen physically? So two things. One, ask for it. Um, faith in God is a gift from God. I'm reminded of Ephesians 2. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, when Paul says that this is not your own doing, it's a gift, what is the, what is the this referring to? It's referring to everything that came before in the sentence before, what is uh, this, this that is in our doing, but it's a gift from God? It's God's grace and it's our faith in him. Faith in God is a gift from God. Grace is a gift. Our salvation is a gift. So because faith in God is a gift from God, it's appropriate to ask God for faith. To say, God, would you please strengthen my faith? Grant me the gift of faith. Give me the gift of repentance so that I can trust in you. It is totally appropriate to ask God. It's like the man in Mark chapter 9, if you remember, Jesus comes and the disciples, we can't cast this demon out. And the sun was, was rolling and he was demon possessed and he was rolling into the fire and, and no one could do anything and the father is asking Jesus and Jesus says to the father, all things are possible for the one who believes, right? For the one who has faith. And how does the man respond? He says, I believe, help my unbelief. Like, Jesus, I believe in you, but man, you've got to help me believe in you. So ask God for faith. Um, I think sometimes we have a wrong view of faith in the Christian church. I hear it often described that faith is kind of like uh, a muscle that you have to flex. So you and your own, if you just kind of learn to like exercise, <laughs> you can tell I never work out <laughs> if you exercise. But we have this idea of faith that if I can just exercise my faith muscles, then I'll get stronger and stronger in my faith. And so you'll hear things like, oh, well, that, that healing would have happened if you had had more faith. You gotta, you gotta exercise your faith and make it bigger. Listen, faith is not a muscle that you flex. Faith is a lens that you see the world through. It's your worldview. And so asking God for faith in Jesus, it's saying not, God, give me big faith muscles so I can get whatever I want. It's, oh, God, would you make the lens of my faith crystal clear and pointed at who? At Jesus. 
oh God, would you give me faith? So, so church, ask him for it. And then secondly, we go to the word. Right? Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So if we want to have faith, we need to be in the word. Are you in the word? The more that you saturate your mind and your life in the word of God, your faith will become clearer and clearer and focused more and more on Jesus. Um, oftentimes, and again, this is not every, everyone, but oftentimes those who are prone to just want to see signs and wonders and proof and I gotta see amazing things to believe, oftentimes they aren't in the word because it's boring. I mean, I actually, again, heard a very popular and well-known pastor in the States and he said, this, pointing to the Bible, is great, but there's so much more than just this. So when you say that, you're no longer a church <laughs> and you're not a pastor if you're like, yeah, this is great, but we got to get beyond that. Let's, do, let's, do, let's see way more crazy things. What the pastor should have said is, church, be in the word. You want your faith to, to become clearer and clearer? Go to the word. Like Paul, uh, uh, John says, why did he write his gospel, which we have studied for 50 weeks? Why have we studied for 50 weeks one book of the Bible? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we study the word because we want our faith to grow and become clearer and clearer and clearer. So I love that Jesus says, actually, there's a blessing that comes when you believe without seeing. And in God's grace, God has given us everything we need to believe. John says, my whole purpose for writing this book is that you, I mean, he's, he's speaking to people who are going to read the book, that's us. He says, so that you would believe in Jesus and that you would have life in his name. And the blessing that comes with faith in Jesus, belief in him, through the written word is like Peter says, you are filled with a joy inexpressible that is filled with glory and you receive salvation. So I want to, I want to encourage you as we've come almost like next week we're going to finish chapter 21, but we've come to the, almost the, con the conclusion of our gospel. My prayer all along is that our faith in Jesus has become clearer and clearer and clearer Right, not that we would fall for things where we go, okay, I gotta exercise more faith, faith so that I can so that I can see more signs and wonders and miracles and proofs. No. My prayer has been that our faith becomes crystal clear, focused on Jesus, so that we are filled with a joy that you cannot explain, and that you are secure in your salvation in Jesus who came and lived and died and was raised from the dead for you. So, Father, I am just so encouraged by your word. Um, thank you that John, when he wrote this gospel, I mean, th this last section of chapter 20, he he's speaking to people like us, people who have never seen the resurrected Jesus physically standing in front of us. And Jesus, you said that actually there's a blessing that comes when we can just have faith in you without ever seeing you physically. So God, I pray that you would just help us. I know uh, in this room, because just the amount of people, there's probably some of us who 
We're just naturally skeptical and we go, I don't know if I can believe unless I see some kind of proof. Or maybe there's some of us who are like, I I just love chasing after signs and wonders and proof and evidences because I think that's that's evidence of the the Spirit. But God, I, I just pray that we would be people of crystal clear faith because of the written word that we have, that we would go, this is enough for me. If God performs a miracle, amazing, praise God, but I don't need it. The word is enough for me. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that by believing in him, I can have life in his name. So God, just do your work in us. Um, God, help us in our faith. I I pray that even this week, those of us who are, are lacking in faith, that we would come to you and ask for it. It's much like how I've been praying for my own kids. God, would you grant them the gift of faith and repentance? God, I pray that we would ask you, God, please help my unbelief. And that, God, you would give us the gift of faith in you. And so, again, bottom line, Jesus, I'm just blown away again by who you are and what you've done. Um, You are worthy of all of our praise, and so we worship you this morning, Jesus. And so now as we go, I pray that you would take the word and the gospel and you would just sink it deep into our hearts and that we would just have faith and trust and and peace and assurance in who you are, Jesus. And so I just pray all of this in your mighty name. Amen.